0: You're listening to New Books in Geography, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host for today, Stentor Danielson, from the Department of Geography, Geology, and the Environment at Slippery Rock University. Today I'll be talking to Ryan Pilgrim, author of Pushed Out, Contested Development and Rural Gentrification in the US West, published this year by University of Washington Press. Dr. Pilgrim, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: So to start off, why don't you tell our listeners a bit about your background and how you came to write this book?
1: Well, I am somebody who has spent her entire life in the West. I grew up in Montana and I have both sides of my family are fifth generation Montanans. I grew up on a ranch there and we lost our ranch during the farm crisis. And I kind of moved all over the state of Montana and I ended up in Sandpoint, Idaho and Dover, Idaho, which is where the book is located. So it's a case study of development in this small town. And I think for me, I... I'm a sociologist. I got my PhD in 2010 from um, University of Oregon. And I, and then I came back to the University of Idaho where I've been teaching since then. And so I had sort of this intellectual toolbox, this academic toolbox to try and understand change. And then also this deep connection to this particular place. And it seemed I had just gotten tenure. And so it seemed like the sort of perfect time to be able to take those two interests and sort of toolboxes and bring them together to answer questions that had always i guess kind of been in the back of my mind like how does this happen why does this happen why does it look like this what are the impacts of this so that's how i ended up writing the book in a kind of a short version
0: okay and we'll we'll get into you know more of that as we go along here so your subtitle includes the term rural gentrification and that's a a term i'm seeing in the literature more and more so could you tell us first just what rural gentrification is but then also take us into uh the argument that you make that that term can kind of obscure the complexities of what's really happening in a place like dover
1: i mean i think that sort of textbook definition of rural gentrification is about population change so it's about increasing populations in rural communities Typically, populations that are coming from urban or suburban popu- or communities, and then it's also, and I think this is the part that sociology helps with. It's also about how those new people, those new folks, um, exert power in those rural communities. So, typically, for it to be or for it to be real gentrification, it needs to include people with social, economic, and cultural power to exert that power in those communities to. Sort of shift um, the political or kind of economic change in those communities.
0: Okay, and so then, how is this playing out in uh, the case of Dover?
1: I mean, so Dover was in a, the early 1900s. A uh, law sawmill was built in Dover, um, and then and it burned down. And then another one was built in 1922. And it had been a mill town on and off from 1900s until uh, 1989. And in 1989, the mill unionized, and then about six months later, closed. And then uh, about five years after that, it burned down. Um, And the mill site sat undeveloped or unused, really for about 10 years. And then the A series of sort of controversial decisions led to the mill site being rezoned as a planned use development that ushered in a 600 unit upscale development on the shores of the river. And I think one of the things that was really interesting for me about this using this community as a case study was that it was actually the city council in Dover, which was made up of working class blue collar and pink collar um, community members who had deep, deep roots there who theoretically had control over the zoning in that community and over the mill site. And so they could really decide what the future of their community looked like. And it, when the development was put in, it radically altered the community. It altered the city council, for example. All of a sudden, it's a pretty small town. There are 600 units being built. The city council is no longer made up of the folks whose parents grew up in the mills or who were working on the railroad, right? It's all of a sudden being run by somebody who owns a giant mansion on the bluff that they all used to play on. So trying to understand why did this happen, especially when on the surface, it seems like local people have control.
0: Yeah, and there were some interesting dynamics that came up as well, because you've got Dover as this sort of tiny little town that's next door to a somewhat bigger, at least, city uh, Sandpoint. And that played into these things as well.
1: Yeah. Um, Yeah. Sandpoint. I mean, Dover. So, and yeah, I don't want to bore your, listeners by all (laughs) of the political economy of north idaho but yeah so sandpoint is sort of the big town and then there's all these little satellite towns around and you can imagine back before roads were as well established and cars were as able to travel as easily that these communities really saw themselves even though they're only two three miles apart as separate and distinct entities yeah so one of the things that's really interesting about north idaho although i wonder if this is true in other places too is that our infrastructure is highly individualized. So like the city of Dover. So at the time, actually, that a lot of this was happening. It was not even an incorporated city. It was just a community of Dover with, you know, a sign on the highway. And but they had their own water system that was from the mill. And so a lot of those communities were getting their water directly from the mill and I've had some people try to tell me like, well, you know, it's not a technically a mill town or it's like, I'm not arguing it's a mill town in the sense that they were using script and things, but some of their infrastructure and a lot of their community identity came from being part of this particular, you know, economic base, this mill, they were getting their water from it, they were getting their sewer from the Rocky Point sewer district was essentially like the Dover sewer district. And there's a lot of towns around, there's Laclede, there's, Sagal there's all these little towns they all have their own water districts and sewer districts and there was a moment where and this infrastructure is super important to the story because it was really in a lot of ways this infrastructural decline in the community the mill gets sold and all of a sudden the city of Dover doesn't have any water they're under a boil order for six years Um, that they had to make some big decisions in the city of Sandpoint and when I'm saying city it has 8,000 residents but it is considered sort of the major city, um, was trying to annex communities. So they were telling Dover, like, sure, you can, we will hook you up to our water and sewer, no problem. But now you're part of Sandpoint. And so there was this really, this sense of identity that this, no, we're not from Sandpoint, we're from Dover. And so we will rebuild all our own infrastructure so that we don't have to be um, pulled into your community. And then you have decision-making power over us. So, there were these really interesting, like regional or like hyper local politics kind of playing into what happens in this particular community.
0: Yeah. And you were were even talked about that being kind of like a a thing that played out among the kids in the school because Mm -hmm. the the school districts were consolidated. And so, you know, the Dover kids and the Sandpoint kids like saw each other differently.
1: Yeah. And Um, I grew up riding the Dover bus. And so like all my, and that's why I had entree, such wonderful entree into the community when I came back, because I have stayed friends with a lot of those kids that I rode the school bus with in high school. Um, although in North Idaho, you can get your driver's license when you're 14 and a half. So we didn't ride the bus for too long. We tried to, you know, kill each other in bad car accidents, not too long after that. But um, yeah, those, you know, you all ride the bus together, you kind of have an identity, your parents all work together and drink together. And yeah, you see yourselves as separate and distinct. And it was interesting when I was doing interviews, I was interviewing folks, some of the folks who were in their eighties and nineties and who there had been an elementary school in Dover at that point. And I mean, they still had a very strong identity um, as Doverites, you know, and those darn folks from Sandpoint. I mean, it was, it was really um, fascinating to me. And also Hey, you know, when you're doing interviews and you're starting a project, you're just trying to be a really good listener and trying to ask good follow-up questions because you don't know what's important yet. That's the problem with any research project. When you start, you don't quite know what you're looking for. And looking back on those interviews and realizing, oh, this sense of identity in place was the reason you made certain decisions in 1990 that created the development on your shores. And I think that's one of the things... um, that I like about being a sociologist is that, you know, I get to connect the, the historical structure. And so, you know, the book, I just kept going back farther and farther in time, trying to understand, well, what happened? Well, why did they believe this? How did this happen? You know, I, there's part of the book where I talk about like the geological history of Lake Missoula. It's like, well, you can't really understand what happened in Dover unless you understand what their soil is like. <laughs> you know, like it just, just seemed like every story kind of built on the next story.
0: Yeah, I think you do a really good job of that in the book that, you know, a lot of books will present some of that as kind of just part of the intro, and then immediately move on to like the thing that they really care about. But you make it clear how every step of what happened in Dover built on the previous step going all the way back to the ice age and this glacial lake that that shaped the landscape of that, uh, that area. So you joked a little bit ago about, you know, people might be bored hearing about the political economy of North Idaho, but I actually think that was a really interesting part of uh, the book. And so for our political economy nerds here, I actually <laughs> wanted to ask you about some of the theoretical perspective that you're bringing to the book, um, because you're, you're drawing a lot on some of these classic uh, political economy theories uh, coming in, including from geographers like David Harvey. Mm-hmm. and so I was hoping you could tell us a bit you know about how these theories help you understand what was going on in Dover and also was this something where like were you already like you know a fan of David Harvey and you brought that theory to this or was this something that emerged out of the you know the things that you were learning about the town or kind of how did you bring the theory and the case study together for this book?
1: Yeah I know I'd never heard of David Harvey until I started or I was about, I'd collected all my data actually. And I was trying to make sense of what I saw. And I am quite familiar, you know, I have done read all of capital many times. So I was very familiar with Marxist theories of the economy and I'm pretty compelled by them. And, but I hadn't really, I mean, I knew, yeah, this is exploitation, right? Like I hadn't really gotten too far beyond those. And I wrote an article trying to think where i published it i think um, society and natural resources and it's about sustainable farming and rural gentrification and one of my reviewers for that article told me well you really need to check out harvey's theory of the spatial fix and i was like okay fine you know you get those kind of reviews sometimes yeah i will go learn this whole new theoretical paradigm why not so but you know i started reading i was like oh this is really fascinating and I, it just suddenly, like to me, the two stories or like his theory and my case study just seem like these perfect overlays. And I did a presentation for a conference and tried to just dis- and tried to like take the different pieces of Harvey's theory and overlay them on my project, like very in a way that you can't do in a book at first, right? You have to like take the chunks and overlay them and understand them very broadly before you can dive deep and it just seemed like it made the whole story make sense cuz one of the things that was really there were two parts of the uh, of the process that I just really struck me. So the first part was that nobody so I went to high school in Idaho and I didn't know any of the history I needed to write this book. None. I didn't even know where to find it and it was I found the history that I needed to contextualize things in really obscure places that are not easy sources to locate, like, um, books that were written by the Idaho transportation department by historians that were trying, you know, just that kind of stuff, like hunting down these sources. And it really upset me that I didn't know my own history and that I didn't really even understand what tribal nations had lived in North Idaho. And I realized that it's not because I didn't care and I'm not a good researcher is because they're so obscure. I mean, especially like indigenous history in North Idaho, the, um, the Kalispell people who lived in the pondery watershed essentially got split up into three different reservations and then renamed. And so it's like, why, you know, it's confusing because it's confusing. So, you know, thinking about that part of it, like that's primitive accumulation. And I, most of my research has been on agriculture and sustainability and Kind of subsistence agriculture, and so I'm really compelled by the idea. Or I really, mo- I think most understanding geography or sociology and and space and place requires an understanding of primitive primitive accumulation. Right? How does wealth get created? And it was like nobody's talking about the timber economy in North Idaho as primitive accumulation, and that it was at the on the backs this barbaric system on the backs of the Kalispell people. So trying to so that part was pretty straightforward, right? That primitive accumulation part, which I think Harvey um, talks about building a space for capitalism and primitive accumulation. I'm sure that somebody's going to write me an email, and tell me I don't understand that there, the sophisticated differences between those things. But you know, more power to you. Send me the email. But you know, in my mind, I was like, oh, these things kind of they're parallel. Um, but then the and the so they build a space for capitalism. But then Harvey talks about the needing to destroy that space. And that was the part that I hadn't really been able to understand what had happened in Dover. You know, like here's this, this community that had been built up and then they're facing all these crises. So their water system was provided by the mill. And when the mill was sold in the late eighties, early nineties, the residents got a letter that said, quote, that the purchase of the land, that the, the water system was quote incidental to the purchase and the developer was no longer going to provide water to the community. Um, and the community fought it, but you know, like, so they have this water crisis, their sewer system is red tagged. They have this bridge that's coming in and out of the community that goes over the railroad tracks where two by two, two foot by two foot chunks of concrete are falling off the bridge, like down below. Um, it was part of my bus route was that bridge. It was a pretty terrifying bridge, right? So they're like facing all these infrastructural crises. And it find, like reading Harvey and realizing all those crises made them vulnerable and then made it possible for the developer to, to exploit that vulnerability, right? That that actually was a resource for people with wealth to exploit by letting things decay. Then they became worthless and they could be reimagined by people with wealth and power. So no, like it hadn't been something. And I think in some ways that made it more powerful to me. It wasn't like there was this this theory that I was super invested in. And I, you know, was going to shove this book into this theoretical framework come hell or high water. It was like, I had all this data. I didn't know how to make sense of it. It was kind of overwhelming to me, all these different stories and threads. And then I found Harvey writing this other article and it just like all the pieces clicked together. Yeah. And yeah i, I think know harvey was important to geography at the time <laughs> i have to say <laughs>
0: uh, yeah i think that whole story of the developers profiting off of refusing to maintain this vital community infrastructure like it's a fascinating story and also really revealing about how capitalism works um yeah, and
1: that, like all oh, it just galled me was that the people of dover got loans or they got grants for low income communities to rebuild their water and sewer systems. And they were forced by a court order to extend that sewer system to the development property. And like, so this is money, federal money that went to low income communities that then made that property valuable. And that just, it didn't surprise me necessarily, but it just, it was like, Oh, that's Harvey.
0: (laughs) Yeah, the sort of big, powerful interests can take advantage even of things that are supposed to even the playing field mm-hmm. with people who are less powerful.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and I will say, as someone, I just finished teaching an economic geography course this past semester, and then I got a hold of your book and started reading it. And I had taught my students about some of these concepts that you're using in in the book and some of these things coming from people like harvey and uh, i read your book and i was like if i had gotten this a few months earlier i could have just had my students read some of your chapters (laughs) that would have because i think you clarifies how these things work um so well and it's really interesting to hear that this is something you came to after having collected all the data like you weren't going out and looking for things to slot into this theory it just that's how it worked out. That just fell into Yeah, I had to
1: imagine this. writing a more, I think, um, a book that centered my interviews more. And I do, I'd like to think I do a, a decent job of that. But I ended up writing a lot more about hmm, kind of the, the mechanisms. I think one of the things that was really important to me too, though, and I, I like that you think that, or the, I like that you said you could have had your students read it. Was it was really important to me? Sociologists sometimes talk about the verstehen, which is like a Weberian concept of like empathetic objectivity. And like if I took this book back to the community that I wrote about, would they both say yes? This this is true to our story. And I hadn't been able to see it this way before. But the way you describe it adds context that help that empowers us. And so I was really conscientious in the writing to try and write a book that anyone i interviewed could pick up and and read and feel like i had made sense of complicated stories in a way that did justice to those stories and left them complicated but also that was written very clearly so that was really really important to me
0: yeah and i know the book has like just come out Uh, But have you had a a chance to share it with people in the community and get their feedback or reactions on it?
1: Yeah, I have. I actually, they did a book signing for me in Sandpoint this weekend, which was really, I don't think, I'm not sure academic researchers do book signings. But, you know, it's like it's my hometown. They didn't care. So, Um, and some of the people in the community have already read the book. I don't know. They seem to, one of them got it before I did. And they have read it, and I haven't gotten any negative feedback. Um, Mostly what I've heard is that it's just such a sad story, and it reminds them of all those sad feelings they had, but that nothing I said is inaccurate, and that they realized what they were up against in a way that I think it was hard to understand when you're in the middle of a battle. Being able to step back and look at everything they did, yeah. No, I've had really, really kind feedback. But then again, the I'm not sure those people would ever say the people I like grew up around are ever gonna say anything mean to me, even if I deserve it. So it's it's hard to like norm that. <laughs>
0: right, right, but
1: they're it's... not gonna bust my chops for like misusing marks. Right, that's just not right. That's not what I'm worried about but they do think I did their story justice. Although maybe if some of them will read it and tell me that I have misunderstood something, I just gave two copies to the Dover community hall this weekend. So I heard they're getting passed around. So I may get more feedback from the Dover right. soon.
0: Yeah. I mean, you're never going to make everyone happy in a situation that has, you know, conflict in it like this, but it is, you know, it's, A good endorsement of the book that people have found it to be true to their experience uh, so far so in the the story of, of dover you know you've touched on this uh already there's kind of two big industries that have been in this town you have the mill first and then you have this housing development uh coming in and one of the you know interesting things about the book is that in both cases, the community has this kind of two-sided or mixed relationship with the industry. So you have on the one hand, you know, class conflicts over labor and land and stuff like that. But on the other hand, you have this uh, attachment to or support for uh, the industry within the community as well. And Mm -hmm. so... Would you be able to talk about some of the similarities and differences in how the town related to these two major industries at these two different uh, periods in its history?
1: Oh, that's a a great question. That's a hard question to answer because I think they were coming to the mill with the gift of time. And I don't know if that sweetened people's memories. I don't know if the I don't know what those interviews would have sounded like if I had interviewed people like in 1960, but there, at least when I, by the time I was doing my interviews in general, there was mostly just sort of like, I don't want to say nostalgic that comes with so much baggage and implies that like, it's not true. Right. Um, or there's elements of it that aren't true, but the stories that people told about the mill were largely warm stories. They stories about a really a lot of pride. Um, and I think for a long time, the mill had provided fairly good labor. I think one of the things that was a little complicated about the story in Dover was it was never one of the big mills. And so it was kind of, it was open and closed and up and down, but there were always other places to get good jobs that the mill in Dover was kind of an example of the work that was available more broadly. Yep. You can't get a job in Sandpoint, just go to Laclede or, you know, go out to all these other little towns that had mills. So there was always work and it was pretty, especially by the time, like by the 1960s and seventies, it was pretty good paying work. It had good, um, good, uh, benefits. One of the things though that I found really fascinating, the way it connects to the, to the development was that, everybody knew that it was a very um, ecologically destructive place in the turn. Like, so one of my favorite interviews was, I think I, I can't remember what I gave him as a pseudonym. I think I said John Zayner, but he was like, he was telling me about all the horrible stuff the mill had done, like throwing big barrels of, adhesive that had gone bad like directly into the lake and burying stuff they weren't supposed to bury and stuff so when there was resistance to the development by this group of people in dover who had moved there more recently and they were much more ecologically minded so they were trying to make the argument like we can't get rid of the we can't fill in the mill site because it's the site of important natural resources like wetlands a lot of the people who'd worked in the mill and who'd grown up in dover were like what are you talking about they have buried adhesive over there. They're like, that is a it was super fun site, right? So like this inability to connect over the import, what made the mill site worth protecting. Um, and when we think about the development, I don't even remember entirely what your question now is. I've just been talking so much.
0: That's all right. You keep going and I'll circle back. If you uh, miss any parts of the I think question,
1: you, you were asking me like, what was the tension over the development? Yeah.
0: About the similarities and differences in how people related to the mill and to the developer as these two yeah, big right. industries in town that both had sort of mixed feelings from the the community.
1: Yeah. And I guess too, the mill like gave people a sense of identity. Even if you didn't work at the mill, Dover was a mill town and you were from a mill town. Whereas the development I think in the town of like among the old timers in Dover, the development, at least gave them the sense that this community that we built, that we spent generations of our family have worked to build, it's going to stay on the map. It's going to look different, but there's going to be a little spot on a map that says Dover, and we will be able to say we made this. At the same time, the development is culturally and economically and socially so different from the old community that there's it's like there's two different towns. And I mean, I think it's interesting when I was doing my interviews, one of the things I ended up coding for was just the different names. Like the community didn't see itself. The town doesn't call itself Dover, right? There's like the development, which in my book I call Mill Lake and the town, which or the old part of Dover, which they call old Dover. Um, so just this like, and even, you know, I'm not a geographer, but I, like to pretend I am one sometimes, maybe. I mean, just the spatial organization of the two communities was so fascinating to me that the way the development, I mean, the development kind of encloses two sides of Old Dover. We can think of Old Dover kind of like a like a box, you know, like a it's on the grid system. It's set pretty far back from the lake and the river because it, that part of the lake and river used to flood sometimes. Um, and then the, the development is kind of built around those two sides of old Dover and but the, they don't, those communities, their roads don't come together. They're built like with their backs to each other. I'm just like the spatial layout of the community is fascinating in terms of the ways that they are built to really be like two separate communities. Um, And some of the old time residents told me like, yeah, now the people in the development are calling old Dover do over just um, so I think it just there's a lot of uh, tension I and mean, maybe tension is gives too much agency to everybody or it's like too much thinking or like that it's an active process. I just think that it's like they don't even interact at all. So you ha- you'd have to interact maybe for there to be tension.
0: Yeah. No. Say we geographers are happy to you know welcome anyone with an interest <laughs> in geography, whatever your degree is officially in. Um, so we've kind of touched on this that you're doing this research on the community that you grew up in, and so you have very personal connections uh, here. And so I was hoping you could talk a little more about that, about how that shaped the process of doing the research, you know, the interviews Mm -hmm. and the archival work and everything uh, that you did. You know, what were some of the both opportunities and challenges that were presented by working on a place that you had lived Uh, for so long and I'm also in asking this question I'm also kind of pumping you for advice because I'm considering a similar project about the town where I grew up so you know hoping to to hear a bit about what made that research project work or some of the stumbling blocks you ran into in doing research on you know the community that you grew up in.
1: Yeah what's your community I have to ask first.
0: It's Palmerton, Pennsylvania so it's in eastern Pennsylvania, it was home to a zinc smelter and then became a Superfund site uh, that they've just recently kind of finished the cleanup on.
1: Oh, interesting. Okay. Um, you know, what's, I think one of the things that worked well for me is I think I had insider outsider status in Dover. So, you know, my family didn't move there until I was 14, until I was a freshman in high school. And I always considered myself a Montanan. <laughs> Um, I think because most of my family still in Montana. But my mom has stayed in Sandpoint and she is sort of like a local character. <laughs> she writes a newspaper. She's the Sandpoint eater for the Sandpoint reader. So everybody knows my mom. She's like the world's friendliest person. So like that helped in the sense that I'm, you know, the introverted Academic type in my family, and everybody else is not that type in my family. And so, when I told my mom I wanted to write this book, and I was like, "Gonna have to get interviews and stuff," she's like, "Oh, those guys are always down at the bar. If you give me money, if you pay for my cocktails, I'll get you interviews." (laughs) Like, (laughs) okay, deal. I will happily pay your bar tab if you will give me interviews. And I have never had a more effective research assistant. She got me interviews that I could not believe. These people were talking to me. And everyone has a pseudonym in the, but like people who were very involved in the process. And, you know, then I'd interview someone and be like, oh, you think you get this person? Oh yeah, I can get that person for you. So my mom was really, really helpful in the process. On the other hand, she still lives in this community. And some of these things were highly controversial that I was writing out. Way more controversial than I had intended, right? I had thought I was doing interviews and going to write this story about what it's like to be left behind in an economy. And I thought that was, it was going to be a sad story, right? But it was going to be a story about these forces that were outside of, out, you know, these structures that are outside of our agency that Im- impact us. And it was actually a story that involved a lot of local actors and some who have longstanding reputations in that community. And, you know, I didn't want to negatively impact those people, people I care about who, um, you know, I had interviewed and even if they have pseudonyms, people know that I'm connected to them through a couple degrees of separation or something. And so I think it gave me, it was really challenging to write in a way that I was both always asking myself, is what I'm writing true? Um, in like big T and little t cents, like, are people going to read this and say, yes, this is true? Do I have? It also really pushed me to always triangulate my data. So I'm pretty obsessive in the book about like doing an interview and getting some weird piece of information. And then I found out that all the archive or all the newspaper archives in Sandpoint were digitized. And so if I did an interview and someone said something that seemed a little out there to me, I always made sure before I... And, A lot of stuff didn't make it into the book, that there was a newspaper article or some other source to back up that claim. You know, so I think it pushed me to to take all my training as a social scientist and put it into practice. That like this was an example of a time I had to to make sure that I was absolutely using best practices, thinking about power dynamics, thinking about like, yes, this person told me this thing during an interview. But I know what it's like to be sitting in an interview, and people sometimes say things that they aren't in their best interest to reveal. And so it is my ethical responsibility maybe not to reveal those things in the book if they're not necessary to the story. So I really had to push myself like, you know, this is a juicy detail or this is sort of salacious. and But that's not my job as a social scientist is to repeat those things. My job is to try and offer an understanding of the world that allows us to build better worlds, I guess. And so I found it to be really really challenging like it was easier it was the easiest like data collection i've ever had but then on the back end trying to be really really ethical and compassionate and rigorous in my analysis it pushed me in a way that i've never been pushed before as a researcher
0: okay that's all good and i think a lot of that comes through in uh in the way that you write in the book
1: I hope so. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. So then uh, one more aspect of uh, the the case study that you're writing about that I wanted to ask about is that, so the town of Dover is 90 something percent white. I forget the exact uh, census numbers that you, you give in there. Right? It's the overwhelmingly white population yes. currently. So how does that aspect of the demographics here shape what, is happening in dover
1: man you're asking such good questions i mean i guess that's your job but i mean this is a story about whiteness and part of the reason that i thought the history part was really important was that i teach critical race theory in north idaho i grew up when i was living in sandpoint the aryan nations was active up there like the actual Aryan nations, not just the white, it's a general white supremacy that we have up here right now. Um, and I remember them handing out bulletins or like these little cartoon books at my high school while you were waiting to get on the bus called the Hall of hoax. how the Holocaust was made up. Just All these caricatures of like black people and it was really, really in your face, right? And I have grown up being told that, well, North Idaho's white, right? And this is just how it is. This just so story about, well, of course, it's a story about whiteness because North Idaho's white. And one of the things that struck me as I was writing the book, and I've always pushed back against that narrative, like intellectually and as a teacher and as a parent. But one of the things that struck me in the book when I was writing was that the county that I was writing about, although at the time the counties were different, but like this area, this region I'm writing about, at the turn of the century, like the turn of the 1900, the railroad was being built by lots and lots of Chinese workers. There were in, um, Kalispell, Salish, Kootenai people. Like 150 years ago, North Idaho wasn't white, <laughs> right? This is a, a particular, there's a particular reason that this community looks the way it is. And that reason is not just like, oh, gosh, I guess that's just how people are, which is the narrative that we've been kind of told in North Idaho. So part of the book was about not being heavy handed about that, but just trying to point people's attention to the fact that, yes, this is going to be a story when it's when we start talking about what happens in in Dover, it's going to be a story that's about whiteness, but it's not about whiteness accidentally. It's about whiteness intentionally. Um, so, you know, one of the things that I have, I'm wrestling with a little bit is that I'm getting a lot of really great feedback about the book and how important this story is and like how heart wrenching it is and all these things. And I think the, the part of me that looks at race and thinks about race a lot is concerned that this story resonates with people because it's easy to empathize with white people. And maybe that's true for people people primarily, but I think it's also just culturally what we've been told that like white people are somehow deserving of our empathy. And so, you know, I'm, I don't know how to make sense with that exactly, but I'm always kind of wrestling with those. And I, um, the conclusion of the book, I really try to come back to this idea of indigenous identity and rights and land rights and to push people to think about what Dover would look like if Indigenous people had control over that land, and um, I use secondary data, some interviews that were done with um, some uh, tribal elders from the Kalispell tribe talking about the Ponderay watershed and sort of the importance of the wa- Ponderay watershed to their identity. Contemporary interviews, and so you know, I think trying to help make that story bigger, help us have bring a broader historical lens and extend our empathy it's like yeah have you felt sad this whole time reading this book so yeah think about so that yes this has displaced like three or four generations of people from dover like conservatively the kalispell people lived on this land for 500 generations so that's a lot of sadness right that's a lot of trauma can we use this empathy to try and understand other people's experience of loss
0: Okay, so I think we've gotten a, a good sense of uh, what readers are in store for if they pick up this book. So I want to end by asking you what you're working on next. What <laughs> projects are you taking up now that this book is completed?
1: Well, I have had a long-standing research agenda looking at women in agriculture, and I don't recommend it, but right as I was I had been on sabbatical trying to finish this manuscript, and like right, right at the end of that process, I found out I had gotten like a half a million dollar AFRI grant to study women and egg. I was going to be done studying women and egg. And then I got this grant. And so I'm back to studying women and egg. We just did um, focus groups around the state of Idaho. We have 700 uh, surveys from women and egg in Idaho. So that's one project I'm working on. And I think I'm going to now one of the things I'm really excited about this project is that it has a big extension compete piece. Um, and so the, I'm working with extension educators to build trainings for women in egg in Idaho to sort of support their efforts. So that's exciting. That's probably going to continue going for quite some time, but my next, like I'd like to write another book and I kind of dream, and this is where if anyone out there has any ideas, I kind of dream about writing a book of case studies, looking at, communities that I would con- sort of consider like ideal communities, um, rural communities. And for me, ideal means that there is economic and racial and social justice within the embedded in the fabric of those communities. They're a place where lots of people are thriving economically. there's you know, so I'm looking for like these ideal small towns in America and trying to understand, like, what is it about them? Because everyone keeps asking me, like, and I appreciate I haven't had to answer this question here because I don't have an answer. Well, what should we do to stop this? Or how can we improve this? How can we, you know, I don't have any simple solutions because I'm a very structural thinker and my analysis is quite structural, right? Like, well, these are, we could tax multinational corporations, you know? And so that's my next project, trying to find these sort of ideal communities and write about like how they have made things work so well in those communities. What lessons could we learn from those places?
0: All right. Well, keep in touch. And maybe we can have you back on to talk about that book if that (laughs) uh, all comes together. So thank you so much for coming on the show.
1: Well, thanks for having me.
0: You just heard a conversation with Ryan Pilgrim, author of pushed out contested development and rural gentrification in the U S West published this year by university of Washington press.